evolution of, I guess, Pop Goes the Culture. Oh, Joey doesn't mind if we're just going to do that. Or we're maybe like... The, we're we're, we're all the same umbrella. <laughs> yeah. Maybe kind of like a pre-prototype to what Brad and I have been kind of coming up with for the last year. I don't know. We'll see how that works. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> so uh, today we'll be talking about the movie, the the infamous film known for not making a lot of money back, known as The 13th Warrior. And also after our, uh, our discussion, there will be an interview with someone who worked on the film named Kevin Van Hook. He was the uh, storyboard artist on the reshoots of the movie. So stick around for that. Yeah, definitely uh, do that because it is really interesting. It was neat talking to that guy. It was, yeah. So starting off, um, I guess we'll go through the plot. I don't want to like drag it out really. So um, who wants to go through the plot? What, just a, like what a brief they, synopsis. Just like a brief synopsis. One of you can do it. Both of you can do it. Even you can do it, Curtis. It's crazy. Even I can do it. What's that Brad do <laughs> you it? can do it. Brad, you can do it. Brad just watched it last night, so. At like two in the morning, I, you should probably do it. <laughs> All right, fine. This was my idea. Um, so, um, an Arab adventurer, I guess he's a, uh, he's an ambassador. He was sent out to go do diplomatic relations uh, to some other country, but he ends up getting. Um, or meeting and running into the Vikings. And then push comes to shove. Um, things happen. He gets recruited to be a part of their quest to go stop what is essentially an army of cannibals from attacking a village. And it is basically a um, if the tale of Beowulf was real, set yep. in the real world. So that's my synopsis. Anyone want to uh, elaborate I mean, on that? I, I did see where, like, um, they were looking at the historical accuracy of it, and they were saying that the first 10 minutes of the movie is accurate. From there, it's just a whimsical interpretation of, you know, what yeah. may have happened. Because yeah. from what I understand, yeah. it, it pretty much ends with, like, he meets them, and he describes them and some of their ways and stuff, and from there, it's you know, that's all you get from it. But uh, I, I was wondering, I was noticing, like, because it has the similarities with Beowulf and uh, that, like, I was, I was noticing in, like, some of the interviews and stuff that I'd seen, like, they label, well, in the movie, the main Viking, like, he's their king, and uh, his, his name in there is Bovine, but... Mm -hmm they label him as Beowulf in like all the interviews. Oh, really? I didn't know if you knew anything about, was that? No, I didn't. I like, I've seen some interviews, some of the behind the scenes stuff, but I didn't know that they had done like that, where it's just, they labeled him Beowulf instead of Bullseye. Yeah, it has his name and then it has Beowulf underneath it. And I was like, well, I know it's taken from that, but I was like, why did they, I don't know if that was a mistake on their part or what it was. So Probably. I just wonder if you knew any behind the scenes stuff. <laughs> oh, I've got a, I got some behind the scenes stuff here. Uh, you can't see it. Oh, All I can see is Antonio Banderas. 
<laughs> well, there you go. Well, let's start off with like, I mean, how did you guys find out about the movie or what was your first experience? Well, I don't really remember how we discovered this movie other than the fact that it was a Michael Crichton movie like i discovered jurassic park when i was young i read the books and i just kind of expanded on to his uh uh his work basically and eaters of the dead was one of them i didn't know the book Eaters of the dead at the time i just remember the 13th warrior and then i i think i yeah i, I remember being at walmart looking at his looking at the book section and i saw that they released Michael Crichton's The 13th Warrior. And if you know anything about that time when it came out, they re-released Eaters of the Dead with the 13th Warrior title. So uh, I guess that that's kind of... I never bought the book when it was named 13th Warrior, but I remember getting the movie. I think we rented it from the library there in the Osho a lot. I couldn't tell you. When this movie came out, I was under the age of 10. So this is a movie that's like been with me since childhood. So I don't remember exactly how I first came across it. I just know that I saw it as a kid. And despite the gruesomeness, I've always kind of enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I, I was probably, you know, 15, I guess, or younger, maybe slightly younger than 15 when it came out. So. I, I think I would have been like, I don't want to say. I might have. Do you been know six. the year offhand when it came, <laughs> it came out? out? Like it came 98, out in 99. 99. I think it was 99 when it came out because they Solid. filmed it in like 97. It took two years to release it because of all the reshoots and stuff. Right. So I was 16. I remember, like for me, um, I saw the movie poster at the. There was two different theaters in the Battlefield Mall, and the one that was kind of up front. Uh, they would play kind of not the normal type movies where the other one got to play all the big blockbusters and everything like that. So I had seen uh, Antonio Banderas and Desperado at that theater and uh, I saw the poster and the, the kid that was work I say the kid, he older than me, obviously, but uh, he, uh, he was telling me all about, oh man, it's from the book and it's called Eaters of the Dead. He was like going off on, you know, oh yeah, you're going to love it. Cause like, I've always been into like gladiator movies and Viking stuff and like all that kind of stuff. So I was like, I'm in, it sounds cool. And I think I watched, I know by myself i went back a couple more times but then i would come back with my friends like you guys see this movie you're gonna love this movie and so i, I probably saw it while it was in that theater easily 10 times Damn. so I, I just loved it okay. now when i'm curious when did it uh like dawn on you that this movie was not as well loved as it was or as you thought it should be was that something you knew like right away or Oh, well, like a lot of people that I thought was going to really dig it kind of didn't. And, uh, but they were, you know, they liked fighting movies, you know, and stuff like that, but it wasn't the, with all the Viking stuff and all that just didn't appeal to them as much. And I was like, why? I don't understand why you're not loving this movie, you know? Right. But uh, the guy had said, like, I talked to the guys, like, a lot of people come to see, you know, he's like, no, nah, we don't get many people asking for that one. And I was like, well, 
I'll watch it. I mean, it's got to be all right. And I, I loved it, but you're the reason that movie made a little bit of money. Yeah. I did read that this movie came out like around the same time as The Sixth Sense did, and that that, mm-hmm. that movie was number one at the box office when The Thirteenth Warrior came out. Which obviously The Sixth, uh, damn it, I can't pronounce it for whatever reason. I keep getting mustache hairs on my lip. The Sixth <laughs> Sense, uh, obviously, that was a huge movie when it came out, and so I'm not too terribly surprised that most people were going to see that instead of the 13th warrior like, it really is a damn shame it. yeah it is kind of a shame i mean sixth sense is not a bad movie by any means but it's not one that stuck with me like the 13th warrior has so yeah, yeah. they what's go ahead i wouldn't say even uh, some of the actors when they were interviewed i mean antonio banderas and the guy who played bovine and several others were like this could have been, if it would have been a bigger movie, like it would have helped several of the people in that movie move right. on because their performances were so good. But right. if nobody saw it, they can't like, love it, you know? Like it's a large cast of people. And the only person in that movie that's really a recognizable star is Antonio Banderas. Everyone else is um, just more character actors or just like barely Foreign. known um and vladimir kolik who's the, he's the actor who played bulvi is he's tremendous in that role and it's uh i think to date kind of his most high profile role here in the states and it really is a shame that it, his career wasn't able to take off as a result of that movie right he gets like bit parts and you know smoke and aces or something Right, yeah. he's just he's the Swedish guy or the whatever the fuck part of the world you need him to be from. Right, guy. Yeah, if you've got a character like that, like Antonio Banderas was mentioning that you know basically from the f- first you know when they when it was still Eaters of the Dead what they shot and then what they came back to shoot for uh, when they did, changed things he was in between Zorro and Zorro two, so he had already had a decent you know, a few movies under his belt. But I, right. I thought it was really neat that they, he went out of his way, the um, director and that, to get, uh, go to other countries and get people of some sort of a Norse, some, you know, something right. of that flavor. Norse and people. Swedish. Right. Yeah. You, I think it, it really was something that he truly endeavored. Like he wanted... Uh, especially for the part of Bulba, he wanted someone who was more appropriate than just uh, picking some random American actor and telling them to try to be a Viking. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I know that I think Crichton and some people at the studio wanted, uh, what's his name, Skarsgård, Stellan yeah. Skarsgård. I think they wanted him as Bulba. And I can see it, but I don't know if I'd like it as much. That would have well, been odd because that would have been the time around the time that he did Goodwill Hunting. And so I'm just picturing him from Goodwill Hunting, but as Bullvi, and it's just not working in my head. You yeah, <laughs> need a bigger stockier guy like right. Vladimir. Well, it was funny because <laughs> the actor that did end up playing Bullvine, uh, and I'm sorry I keep forgetting his name, uh, but he was saying that he felt like, okay, you know, I did pretty good. And then he had heard that uh, they were looking at uh, Skarsgård and he was like, well, yeah, that's so much for that. 
And he's like, uh, it was about four months later, I think he said that uh, he got a phone call and he got it. He's like, almost like, really? <laughs> okay. <Right. laughs> I thought that's pretty neat. You, Is you there? No, go ahead, Brad. Well, you mentioned that uh, Antonio Banderas was in between Zorro movies when he did this. And that I can't help but think of the scene where his character, who by all accounts is just a poet who is now an ambassador and has no combat experience whatsoever. Like he gets handed a sword and then he like carves it down into something a little bit more uh, (laughs) Arabic in style and starts tossing it around like fucking Zorro. (laughs) So suddenly he's a master (laughs) of the sword. (laughs) Okay. With with him being in the upper echelon of uh, right of that society he yeah. would have probably taken sword classes fencing or something yeah something of i don't that. know about fencing if that's <laughs> something akin to it but yeah, yeah something like that yeah possibly. whatever they do but now as far as like just you know going over and start blacksmithing a new sword it's like mm, that, that was a little tough to believe but i was like <laughs> I, don't know, I like I it, but <laughs> there's it, a lot. It totally fits to his play, character, but... though, because his character would not have been able to swing a, a broadsword type like that. Yeah, um, as that scene clearly demonstrates, he can't even cut a fucking wooden post with no. it. I mean, have have you guys ever held like a legit like no. uh, that I, style of a sword? I mean, because they're pretty heavy. They they are, and I mean, it doesn't sound that much because it's roughly eight to ten pounds, and you think, well, that's not that big a deal. But you swing it a few times, you know, you're like, wow, these guys went into battle for hours, you yeah, know, with these things. And of course, people. they had to be uh, quick with it too, because you can't just yeah. be you know swinging slowly. The other guy might get you. You can be girdle the turtle with it. <laughs> yeah, and that's that has a lot to do with the sword maker and how it's balanced, so that you can, you know, swing it and you don't get as tired with it. But it's 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 kind of neat to actually hold something that's authentic and you know get a feel for. Okay, these guys, you know, they were they were studs. <laughs> do you think that? Do you think it's actually possible to take one of those gigantic swords and do what he did with it and turn it into a what do they call that? A centaur or? Uh, oh, what, uh, oh, Banderas's character did with the sword. Yeah, I mean, because you talk about balance and whatnot, it's just like I don't know. I'm just curious. Um, I don't know anything about sword making. I mean, they're. I I don't know because I mean, if you heated it up and you know beat it to where it got that you know shape to it, you know that larger at the end, you know. But I I think with what's left of it, you'd be a thin at the, yeah you know, I don't know how well it seemed like it would, a couple of good whacks on something it'd be breaking in half, but maybe not. I don't know. Well, what were you gonna ask earlier, Curtis? Uh, what are some like, why do you think this movie sort of like stood out for you, like growing up, and why do you think it stuck with you? I got an answer, Brad. Uh, I don't know. Like I said, I was a kid when this came out, and uh, 
it's the type of movie that when I was a kid, like it's kind of gory at times. It probably shouldn't have stuck out to me <laughs> as something that I wanted to rewatch. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It's just something about the movie and the story itself, which is very interesting. Um, I, I don't know. I, I can't, I don't really have a good answer for that question. And that's kind of funny. You know, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times about the gore of it stuff. And I was, seeing where uh it didn't have any of that in the beginning because they were wanting a pg movie or at least a pg-13 13 yeah but then they he decided that he wanted it to be an r-rated movie and so they had to go back in and shoot some of the battle scene yep you know it's sad i think the movie would have suffered if it were a pg-13 movie but if it were a PG-13 movie, you would have gotten a younger audience and they probably would have loved the shit out of it. And it probably, probably would have been uh, done a little bit better at the box office because that that audience level was not going to turn out to see Haley Joe Osment and Bruce Willis. They were going to go watch the fucking people uh, swinging swords at uh, creatures and shit like that. Yeah. I, for me... You know, like going back to what I was saying, I mean, ever since I was able to read, I read about the Greek gods and the Viking, you know, stuff. And, you know, the I was big into the Egyptian culture from back then and uh, learning about the battles and learning about all that stuff. So for me, it's always been in my blood and I've always felt like, because of my lineage i have viking in me you know so it's like i was i was always drawn to and i love the culture and i love you know when you find out the real culture not what people not like they all ran with horns on their helmets and they all did this <laughs> they were filthy people and blah 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 that just wasn't the case you know but uh so for me the violence helped i love the battle scenes i love the it's your like eyes. That, you know? The violence helped, and you're like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, so but it it was a good story and just appealed to everything that I was into as a 16 year old kid. You know, and since you brought it up, I kind of want to ask you, said uh, Kenny, since you're a bit more well read on Viking culture and mythology than Curtis and I are, how does this movie? Um, kind of rate for you in terms of accuracy uh, as it's with how it presents uh, these viking characters and that's something that brad and i were asking each other just a little bit ago so yeah yeah, we're not experts on this well like uh let's see well pretty much everything you know you get a lot of the feel of it in the first little bit of the movie and that's you know they used to um like when uh they when the king died and they would put his uh treasures things that was his on a long boat and then um usually what they would do is um like if they had they would have the uh, servant girls gather and they would ask them if any one of them wanted to go to valhalla with their king and they would one would step forward and say yes they would 
like treat her really well, you know, pamper her, uh, keep her drunk the entire time. And then <laughs> she would, um, she would have sex with all of the people that surrounded themselves with the King. And um, then when it was time, they would throw a rope around her neck and they would all strangle her until she, uh, well, let me back up. They'd strangle her. And then the, um, the, what did they call her? Angel of death. Yeah. Angel of death. Um, They would uh, come up and take a dagger and stab them repeatedly until they finally died. Then they laid the body out beside the king, set it on fire, and pushed it out. So everything you described is like if they did that today, they'd all be in jail. Yeah. <laughs> you got her drunk. Um, you all had your way with her. Then you strangled her, stabbed her, burned her. <laughs> and uh, but like the part where they washed their face, you know, blew their nose, spit into yeah. it, stuff like that. That would have been true. The only difference, um, instead of them passing it around, they would have had one of their servant girls take it, you know, and they would all take their turn. But, you know, which is pretty gross, but I mean, it's very in gross. All, <laughs> in all reality, you know, if you look at like a lot of the cultures of that time, they would maybe bathe once a month you know, yeah. if even that, where the Vikings would uh, bathe sometimes up to three times a week. And they would always have, uh, they all had combs. They all had stuff that they cut themselves, oils, you know, to put in their hair, put on their skin, stuff like that. So they would, actually, they were the almost the cleanest of, you know, people of that era and stuff still grows but the cleanest yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah, I, I can't help but think of um just like you know in the states even like around the the formation of the country like people back then would bathe in the same water that someone else had just took taken a bath in and they would do yeah. that like all day long um just because that's what you had to bathe in it's either yeah. that or go find a fucking pond somewhere that's got god knows what in it right um like you can't really be extremely hygienic back in those days no but you know as far as everything else i mean like you know they were obviously um they did believe in the your fate is already written you're so you can do what you want to do when he says you know go hide in a hole if you want your fate's already decided you know it's that's what they believe so that they were fearless because if if it was destined for them to die on that day they were going to if not they weren't going to they had no you know fear of that so when you kind of and i've always adopted that in my like i've never been afraid to die so i i just know that when it's my time there's nothing i can do about it so I kind of adopted that and I probably from reading and stuff like that when I was younger, it stuck in my head, you know, but, um, you know, I'm trying to think of anything else in that movie that would have, I mean, from there, you know, they basically arrive on the thing and they fight their battles and, you know, stuff like that. So there's not much more to that. Right. Um, I just want to, since we're kind of on this part, I think, it is interesting to note that the the character that Antonio Banderas plays, 
um, I, I'm probably going to mispronounce this. Ahmed Ibn Fadlans, I believe is how it's pronounced. I, I could okay. be wrong. But he's actually like the one character in the movie that's actually loosely real. based on a real life person yeah. who traveled um, to these parts, uh, was like an ambassador for um, uh, his country. He came from Baghdad and went up that way. I don't know if his uh, the reason he was sent on this mission is entirely accurate, like the way it's presented in the movie. I don't know. But the person in real life actually went up that way and did encounter Vikings, um, not necessarily the specific Vikings in this movie, like these specific characters. I don't know if he ever named any of the Vikings that he encountered. I think but, he ran into uh, the uh, Swedish Vikings. Right. The, the Rus. The Rus, yeah, right. Right. The Volga Vikings along the Volga River. Yeah. Um, and I believe his account of those people is where a lot of um, our information about Vikings at that time kind of comes from, or at least some of that comes from. Um, and I, from what I understand, he did go in detail on their uh, hygiene or lack thereof as he saw it, and as well as their uh, burial rituals, not really burial, but their funeral rituals, um, because while he was there, he saw like a 10-day um funeral um for a fallen king and like a like pretty much the first 10 minutes of this movie is loosely adapted from like his actual accounts of these people and then from there it turns into a uh, more grounded retelling of the tale of beowulf yeah. uh, which i find really interesting that a lot of this actually is real uh, or not necessarily a lot of it, but like there's an element of truth to truth. this. And um, the, I would have never have guessed uh, that Vikings and people like, you know, Arabic nations and stuff would have done trade and like, uh, you know, had encounters with one another at that point in time. It's uh, it's kind of interesting to, to think of or to think about. If I'm and not mistaken, weren't they, like the Vikings, weren't they trading furs? And, I believe. Uh, I yeah, think but, some silks. Yeah, and, some, uh, a lot of pelts where, and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah I actually, more. I've read an article recently where they found some um, Viking burial grounds or whatever, and looking through it, a lot of the Viking, well, not a lot of it, but some of the Viking clothing that they found had Arabic symbols in it. And I was just like, see? It, it, it's all there they, they did meet <laughs> yeah it depends on where they found what ruins at you know what burial stuff stuff wherever they would go into they would take a part of the culture and embrace it and which is yeah. kind of why they got into christianity you know at, at some point but they um they would just do little like um like the way they made their uh, swords and stuff like that they would incorporate you know danish stuff into it they would incorporate you know scottish stuff into it you know just whatever so they they didn't just come in and just you know wreck the place or whatever they would generally generally when they came in they had had a, enough of a reputation that uh they were like we don't want any trouble you know here's your gold here's whatever you need to just they basically paid them off like in frankfurt and stuff like that 
And, um, but then some of the Viking cultures would be like, Hey, thanks. And then go in and still slaughter the men, rape the women, you know, do stuff like that. So you had some of that, but for the most part, they kind of tried to come into the culture and integrate into it and kind of sometimes try to take it over. (laughs) And that's one thing you kind of see in the movie is when Antonio Banderas is sort of, when he learns their language, and Bullseye comes up to him later. He's like, "You can draw sounds." He's like, "Draw sounds." Yes, and he, I, I he writes out, well. "There is only one God, and Muhammad is his prophet." And he's right. teaching Bullseye how to write this, and then Bullseye does it again later. You, you kind of see him sort of embracing what Ahmed has to offer. Yeah, right. I find it kind of amusing that his character is like low key trying to convert them to <laughs> Islam, and they don't really give a shit. They're just like, yeah, whatever. He's teaching me how to write. <laughs> he doesn't really care otherwise. I don't know. I feel like Bullby was probably, if he had lived, he probably would have been a little more embraced. I think he would have had the, the curiosity to learn more, but yeah. I don't know if it would have converted him necessarily. Yeah. True. But uh, what was what was some of your favorite parts of the movie? Like the stick out, like if you, if first thing you think of, uh, real stronger <laughs> <laughs> when you can't pick up the sword, yeah. like I can't swing this one, real stronger. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's such a simple answer, but it's true. Like, real stronger, pussy. <laughs> that, uh, that was, was that Herger? Uh, that was Herger. Yeah. That? His my character is by far like kind of my favorite in the movie, yeah. just because yeah. of his sense of humor. <laughs> like, it's really great in that movie. Um, but as far as like scenes of the movie or sequences, the fucking cave sequence when they find the uh, the Wendell layer yeah. and are going there to attack the Wendell mother, that is kind of the peak of the movie for me. It's like where the movie like it like it builds up to that point, and then that's like where it is the best for me because there's so much suspense. Like they're trying to sneak around their layer without being detected. And they're like hanging from cliffs as like their fucking Wendell soldiers are walking by. They're, they're, There's the one guy that doesn't want to take off his armor and he accidentally yeah. hits a rock with it. Right. You're it's like, a very you're not kiss me first. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and then of course, uh, when they're trying to escape and the fucking Wendell soldiers are coming at them and they like, fuck, we don't know how to get, get out of here. We're gonna have to either fight our way out or die. And then they uh, find a passage down, but it leads like they follow a stream and it leads under the rocks and it's like well fuck um we can either stay here and just you know try our odds or we can try to swim it and hope for the best and of course herger again is like well if they don't follow us then it's too far to swim (laughs) (laughs) well then you also have the line of the redhead who's like he starts laughing he's like oh great on top of everything else it's gonna rain yeah. And that's when they realize that they're by the Thundercliffs. I, I thought that was a pretty funny little thing, too. Right. Right. Um, kind of an interesting thing since we were talking about this part here. Uh, did you know that uh, the Herger, the, his real name is David something. I can't remember what it is. Uh, like Sahori or something like that. Yeah, something like that. that. But he, uh, when they were shooting it, like when they're shooting the scene in the cave, they were, um, I believe, in Canada, I think. And then uh, when they were shooting a scene of them coming out of the tunnel and going up to the surface, they'd shot that in like Malibu 
but um, they were on a sound stage shooting the going through the tunnel part. And I guess they had all gone through and come up and was like, where's David? And they're like, yes. he's on the other side. And it's like, no, he's not on the other side. <laughs> so I guess Antonio Banderas had to like go under go the water. Under. Yeah. He was like feeling for him. And then he grabbed his arm and he pulled him out, but he was, he almost drowned. They said he uh, like couldn't work for like three days. He kind of had to just take off and, yeah, so he, got, he got stuck on something under there. And, yeah. And Antonio Baderas had to pull his ass out. Yeah. I was like, damn, that's crazy. But right. yeah, he, he was always my favorite character too. That's a, uh, several people and even my wife kind of is like, if if you were one of these characters, it that would be you. He's yeah. like just his whole personality and just everything he does. But like for me, my favorite part of his is where he's fighting the son of the king, um, his big like right hand man or whatever, and they're yeah. doing the shield thing, and that guy just guy's like two him. feet taller than him, <laughs> yeah, quite a bit and younger. Just, and he's looking like he's beating his ass and stuff, and he's just he just played him, and he just kind of spins sidesteps and cuts his head off, and it's just like, oh, <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> My mine's more. Uh, I know I said grow stronger, but I think probably my, one of my favorite scenes is also in Bob Sarger is that he's talking with Antonio Banderas after a battle and he offers him drink. Oh, yeah. And Antonio Banderas is like, I cannot, because, you know, his Arabic religion is I cannot taste the fermentation of grape, grape or wheat. Uh-huh. And Herger just starts laughing. He's like, it's made of honey. <laughs> and hands it to him and walks away. So my- then, he of course, it. he drinks it, and then he passes it to uh, the one girl that he'd been shacked up with. Because, like, you probably need a drink, too. <laughs> yeah, my, we were actually talking about doing the podcast tonight, and my, we were talking about the movie, and my wife had mentioned that's one of her favorite parts, too, is when that happened. He's like, it's honey. It's <laughs> made of honey. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, that's, that's such a great part. Culture shock for her. Antonio Banderas there. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, when was the last time you guys uh, rewatched this movie? Did you rewatch it recently? Uh, it was maybe a week or two ago for me. I think a couple weeks ago. It was yeah, definitely it was right, be- right before the interview with Kevin. Okay. So, was there, it was it there anything? On- oh, oh sorry. sorry, Kenny. No, I was just going to say it popped up on Hulu like a couple weeks ago and I was scrolling through stuff and i was like it was shit it's like 11 30 or something at night and i'm like i don't care i've got to watch it so I well the reason i ask is uh i i just rewatched it i rewatched it like a couple months ago and i just rewatched it again last night and uh i was wondering if there's anything that you guys are uh, like saw like this time like the most recent time you watched it that you had never noticed before um, and what that would be. Oh, I've literally I'm, seen this movie, I don't know, probably 50, 60 times. It so wasn't, it wasn't the, this most recent one. It was stuff that I've noticed over the last year when I've read more about it in the last couple of years. Oh. Really, I noticed um, where you can tell that they added the plot of the sun which we talk about with Kevin, uh, the leader, basically. Kevin refers to him as the son of the Wendell mother. 
they don't really say that in the movie, but I'm guessing it's really what the original concept was. Well, I think um, because of the Beowulf story, you had the character yeah. of Grendel, and then you had Grendel's mother. So I think it makes sense that like the leader is supposed to be Grendel. Yeah. Um, he, I noticed like the scene where they go and visit the uh, the. I guess it's it's not the. They have the angel of death at the beginning, and then they go and see the other lady. She's kind of not really an angel of death. She's like an oracle or something. Yeah. And I the one who tells she, him where the layer is. Yeah, seek her in the earth. Blah blah I, blah. And then I there's think she's scene. just supposed to be a villager who had encountered them when she was a child, and kind of yeah, it's like kind of crazy, but kind of knows some shit about them. Well, like she tells them, like you mu- you must kill the the mother. And then when they go to leave, it cuts back and you see her. She's holding the thing, the the what's that called, the talisman or token or whatever. It's like a mini sculpture of the the window or the yeah the window mother. She's been holding it the whole time, but then like when it cuts back, it's in front of her mouth, and you hear her say, "Um, "You uh, beware the leader, that he has the horns of power. He too, you must kill." But it's like in front of her mouth, so it's it's like. Like an eighty-yard line. That's an eighty-yard line. They eighty-yard yeah. that in to add that plot in. <laughs> yeah, and there's a few other things like that that I've noticed. Um, the first time you see the 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 Wendell leader, um, you see like a close-up of him. It's like after the first battle, and he's got the horns. I'm not sure because it's a it's an older DVD. I'm not sure if it was honored green screen, maybe, and if not. When it cuts to like he turns around and leaves, when you when it cuts back, you see Boulevard point at him, and then it cuts back to him leaving. It's just a normal guy on a horse. It doesn't have the two horns. That was like one thing I noticed too. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, this last time that I watched it, I don't know why, but the very first line of the movie made me think of Army of Darkness and the very first line of Army of Darkness because. <laughs> You remember, like, they both start out with narration, and it's, like, a scene that's happening later in the movie, and then it jumps back to, like, where, you know, it all started. But, like, in Army of Darkness, you start out with uh, Bruce Campbell's character in Chains saying, my name is Ash, and I am a slave. And then in 13th Warrior, it's uh, Ahmed Ibn Fadlan on the the boat as it's fucking storming and raining, and he's, like, crouching down trying to stay warm. And he says his name, like in the narration, and things weren't always this way. And I just thought of him. <laughs> and then later, when he learns their language, he refers to one of them as a, a pig-eating son of a whore. And I just thought of Army of Darkness again when uh, the old lady uh, screams, into the pits for those bloodthirsty sons of whores. And it's like, did they watch <laughs> Army of Darkness before writing the script? <laughs> But that was all that I, I all that I had noted between the two movies, but I just thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> I remember when I first saw the movie when I was young and uh, that scene where he's learning their language and I was just like, wow, that's how, why that seems quick to be learning, you know, a whole new language without them being able to say this means blah, blah, blah. This means... And then as I got older, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot these treks would take months. You yeah. know, I was like, and oh, you yeah, kind of, you don't notice it at first, if, like, you know, because we were younger, but, like, even when you watch it now, though, when you, 
as many times as we've watched it, you can see like there's a passage of time. Sometimes it's raining, sometimes it's not. Characters are over here, next shots, mm -hmm. the, like it fades and then they're over and it's somewhere else. And so, yeah, it's yeah. definitely like a long yeah. passage of time. Of course, being older, it makes a little bit more sense because it's not like it just comes to him all at once. It's just little by little, he's listening through conversations and it'll be like complete gibberish to him. And then there'll be one thing where he's like, I think I know what you just said. And like, you'll hear that in English. And I've had moments like that in everyday life, like whether I'm watching something that's, you know, dubbed in another language or something like that, spoken in another language or just, just hearing it. And it's like, I'm pretty sure I haven't, I, I don't know specifically what they just said, but I, I got the gist of what they, whatever they said means. Right. And you just kind of, when, when you are, um, faced with that on like a daily level like his character was I, I imagine it is pretty reasonable like that level of immersion like you would start to pick up on things here and there um, yeah. I do have to say though like as brilliant as that scene is like the moment like he starts to speak their language he is like 100% fluent in their <laughs> language which is a bit like yeah I'm a bit skeptical of that he should be like the rest of, throughout the rest of the movie should still be like some translation errors here and there, but well, it is what especially it is. Especially to pull out the phrase, you pig eating son of a whore. <laughs> you know, right? How did he get that phrase? <laughs> I know. I was like, is that something they called each other a lot? Is that where you picked it up? Or? Like the pig eating part, especially. Like they probably did call each other sons of whores at some point, but like well, pig eating, what? that seems specific. Well, not even that, but like, you know, when he's like, at least my mother was a noble. I'm like, where would they picked up noble? That's not something they would have right. said. So, but I was like, I get it. It's part of the, right. it's what I mean, he it's would It's a say. movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And even talking about that, the scene where they're all like, I will be on this track or whatever. You, when the person asked who will be the first man, you can kind of like, when he says it in that language, you kind of understand they oh right. Well, exactly. I don't understand what language he's speaking. I have no idea what language he's speaking. Don't know what the fuck he specifically said, but I know exactly what he said. Yeah, and like it even when he because it's subtitles that said I will be the first man. When you hear him say it, it sounds like he says Yay will be the first man. Like yeah. it, it yeah, sounds similar. Like yeah. like uh, you know like you went to a country they kind of speak your language, but it's still a little different. So it's yeah. kind of hard to adjust to. Like, there's some scenes in that movie that are kind of like that for me, and, it, and I'm like, well, it makes it goes to that scene where he's picking up their language makes it a little more be believable. I mean, it's a believable scene, but it, it, you know, it doesn't. Even though he's like 100% fluent when he starts speaking, like I, I just buy into it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I was kind of. I always wondered that too because I was like, I I know that, like maybe there wouldn't have been a phrase like I'll, I'll i'll be the first man like maybe that wasn't a phrase in you know nordic you know mm -hmm. language and stuff so they had to add it for the and just kind of get throw a little accent on it make it sound you know right, right. i don't know if that was their thinking or if they wanted to make it clear that i'll be the first man you know they wanted to make sure the audience knew that well, was going. let me see here uh the the dialect that they were speaking it was like a combination of some kind of 
Eastern Nordic and Swedish language kind of like together. Yeah. 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 A little bit of that. So which would make sense because that's the Vikings that he ran into. So yeah. (coughs) I mean, hell Herger, I think spoke bits of Latin and that's why Omar Sharif's character was able to use him to kind of translate and stuff like that because well, apparently none of the other spoke, Vikings really understood what the fuck he was saying. Apparently he spoke Greek too which is how he understood because at first Omar Sharif was asking in Greek and yeah. so Herger understood him but he just answered in Latin so I think he probably like understood Greek but but like didn't speak Greek so he spoke Latin instead. Yeah. Which would make sense because those two cultures would have talked to each other and interchanged that those languages. So that makes right. sense. So um, <laughs> I, there, there is there is something I, I'm going to bring up because you said what's something you've noticed, and okay. Brent knows where this is going. I don't know um, what I do. <laughs> so being a young impressionable kid, you know, you tend your mind tends to just think certain things when things happen in movies like oh wow is that what that means the scene where they're doing the last battle it cuts to what's what's the woman from the movie heat that's in this movie what was her name oh um her name's diane venora something like that yeah she kind of plays like i think it was cut out but sort of like a love interest to bullvi but you don't really see any of that in the final movie like they yeah. they'd exchange they exchanged some glances throughout the movie that would yeah. make you think they kind of had something yeah yeah well there's a scene where she goes to where the blonde woman that antonio banderas is with and i she's love that we don't know the characters names like <laughs> yeah, there's there's some characters you just don't remember their names there's so many of them but well, we'll she be- hands her a bunch of knives and says when the time comes, don't let them be taken. Referring uh, to know, the children. Referring to the children. I always took this scene as like, oh no, it's, it's going to get so bad, she's going to have to kill all those children. Curtis <laughs> <laughs> so said something like said something to that effect to me like several months ago, maybe even last year. But I was like, wait, what? I've always took it as you're our last line of defense, not kill the children if they get this far. <laughs> and I'm like, just watching it like a year or two ago, whenever it was, we had this conversation. I'm just like, you know, there's like five or six knives she hands her. She's not going to need five or six of them to kill children with. She, they, she's got a fight. Why did I always think that she's got to kill the children? <laughs> right. I imagine the knives were supposed to be like handed out to whatever other like slightly older children would be there like just whoever can fight like ask these yeah. and that would have and that would have been all of them i mean they all start training to fight from the moment they can pick up their lightest dagger or lightest whatever so mm-hmm. i mean they, they literally start fighting at like two years old so they they the kids could probably take most of the wendell guys probably so they're pretty proficient in it yeah all right well i got that out (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know your mind went there but okay (laughs) yeah it's a little weird 
Blue Raider that I thought that as a kid, and I thought that up until like a year ago. When Apparently, I watched you thought it. that for at least like two decades. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I saw that, I was like, "Man, that's perfect." <laughs> I, I guess I wouldn't have thought anything like that because I do know the culture, so I knew that they would like the women can fight just as hard. Now they went into battle right beside the men, so there was no weak, you know, women in that culture. So. I didn't, right. I wouldn't have thought, you know, all right, well, we've reached to this point. Kill the kids. <laughs> Don't let them get eaten. Go ahead and kill them. Like, like that would have stopped them from getting eaten. <laughs> I Look, I get it. It doesn't make sense. I don't know why I thought that. I don't know what, kind of, what kind of Anakin Skywalker shit you're trying to pull. But <laughs> Goodness. It killed the young ladies. <laughs> we were Honestly, speculating, like, what would happen if that happened? Like, the woman that she hands the knives to misinterpreted, and like the battle ends, everyone's happy. She goes down there, and all the children are slaughtered. Like, what happened? You told me to take care of it. Like, no. I'm picturing her being like Tom Jane at the end of the mist, just screaming at her. <laughs> Uh, uh, a weirdly similar note (laughs) (laughs) a while back i was thinking about the fact that the uh the window mother that has to be killed um as i as i understand it originally they shot the scene with an, an older woman um in that role because you know she's supposed to be like the mother and uh, Crichton did the reshoot of that because it, it seemed weird that Bullvi would just come in and uh, kill this old lady and cut her head off. <laughs> so they went with a, a younger woman, so it would seem like there's more of a threat. And I think the sequence uh, with the younger actress definitely works. But I was also thinking, like, okay, if she's supposed to be like the Wendell mother, does that mean she's just the mother of like the leader of the tribe or is she like the mother for all of the tribe like the it's like I, I don't know and it just seemed weird to me like shouldn't there be like with that many people in their tribe shouldn't there be multiple mothers and then I was just picturing like well that would be fucked up if Bullvi's got to go in there and kill a bunch of pregnant women <laughs> it was like maybe it's a good thing they kept it to just one woman <laughs> yeah I I would think that there probably are other women and they kept them like away. Like their job was to cook and to, cause you, you saw like the guys in the cave, they were just like hanging around, bullshitting around a fire or just wandering around. So that's my, that's my take of it. But like they were saying that um, the reason why they went with the younger attract well more attractive girl is because they wanted um bovine to be taken back a little bit that okay she was expect he was coming in expecting this hideous whatever and no it's this kind of attractive young he's just like hey oh i get it so you know (laughs) kind of like like whoa you know he wasn't expecting that and that's the reaction that they got for that scene and that's why they went with it but there's i think there's like four different women credited as the uh, mother so i don't know if they shot stuff with yeah 
like the one that's in the movie is like her credit is given to someone else who was the older woman like uh, i have it right here the the original older woman was played by veteran actress uh, susan willis and then the one they used in the movie is played by Kristen cloak but the credits still list susan willis so yeah which is interesting and i, I remember seeing an interview with what's his name vladimir Colleague, yeah, I was literally about to mention the same yeah. interview. He said that he, uh, you know, after filming both of those, he felt like Crichton's approach was better yeah. or more appropriate. So, yeah. I think he even said that, like, at times, like, it was there was kind of a dispute between the director, John McTiernan, and Crichton, <laughs> who obviously wrote the book but was also serving as a producer on the movie. And I think he said in that same interview that he would go like do like film a scene with McTiernan and then like the same fucking day turn around and do the reshoot of that scene with Crichton or something like that like that would happen a couple of times which is fucking odd right <laughs> but uh I, I guess that's just I don't know one just of those things behind the scenes drama I don't know which this movie had a lot of it but yeah. you know eventually it kind of came out and is what it is. I would still like to see what McTiernan had planned originally, even if it was, even if there was a lot of stuff that he didn't shoot that was in the movie. I still feel like there was a lot of stuff that he did shoot that they still didn't use, but I'm not sure. Like we talk about it with Kevin and he actually had, they sent him a VHS of what they had at the time. I'm not sure if what they sent him was, just a rough cut of what McTiernan had originally done, or if it was just like a rough cut of what they had based on what was already shot and they needed things to kind of add to it. So yeah. But um, yeah, there's a pretty troubled. It was took, like I said, it took two years after they filmed it initially because of all the reshoots and everything before they actually released it. Um, Do you want me to read some of these? We've already went through some of what I had highlighted trivia-wise. So, um, like, uh, let me look. Oh, like, uh, the original composer was Graham Rebell. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. Uh -huh. He he did, uh, I remember he did The Crow, the score for The Crow, the original one. Interesting. And he's done a, he did a few others, but he did the score originally for the movie when it was Eaters of the Dead, but then when Crichton took over completely, uh, Crichton went with Jerry Goldsmith and to this day Graham reveals like not even sure if Crichton ever actually heard his original score <laughs> but well, like I it makes sense because Crichton worked with Goldsmith a lot. Yeah I was, I was getting ready to say that I think Crichton had worked uh, with Ger uh, Jerry Goldsmith on previous films and stuff so it might have been part of the reason why he went that route. I will say um, what I've heard of the original score is definitely a bit more horror-esque in terms mm -hmm. of like the, the music and like the tones that it kind of evokes um, whereas Jerry Goldsmith's score is definitely more fitting for an action adventure movie which might be what why Crichton did that like why he wanted something a bit more of an action adventure um, right even like some know. of the stuff like at the beginning of the, the original score is a little more Arabic in nature too because right. it's kind of like a blend at a certain point um, one of the Viking ships used in the movie is now the Norwegian Pavilion at the Epcot Center in Walt Disney World, where it used to 
where it is used as a playground for kids. Uh, Disney owns Touchstone, so that's why it's there. Right. Oh. The movie was distributed by Touchstone. That's I did not know that. Now I want to go there and just play on one of the Viking ships. It's like, why is that bearded man playing on the ship <laughs> with He's... all those children? He's going to kill would... the children. Like I would just be standing on the bow of the ship saying, low do I see my... <laughs> yeah. I mean, duh. And the... Have you guys ever been to the Smithsonian, to the uh, the building that has, like, the Viking stuff in it? No, I can't tell you. Mm-hmm. Where's um, it at? It's in uh, D.C. D.C. area, DC? yeah. Yeah, so uh, we went there, of course, and that was one of the – because there was – there were six buildings at the time, I think, and they were working on the seventh one, but they, of course, already built that. But uh, I wanted to go to there, obviously, to see, and they have a uh, Viking longboat in there, so you can get the idea of, you know, how big it was. Then they have a lot of, the, like, swords and uh, different stuff like that that, you know, they found in burial places and stuff. So it was, of course, you couldn't touch none of it because, you know, it was you know but just behind glass just being that close to it i was like oh i was just like oh man i was just loving life i was like god i'd love to have a fight because they you know every so often they'll you know find the old swords and stuff like that and riverbeds that have dried up or you know they're doing some excavating stuff and they find i just i just just to be able to be dig one up and just hold it oh that'd be amazing yeah it would uh, right here. You know uh, who director Stuart, Stuart Gordon was? He directed Reanimator from Beyond. Yeah. He originally optioned the rights from Michael Crichton's book in the early 1900s, 1990s. It generated a lot of interest before uh, then McTiernan ended up getting involved. I forget when the book itself came out, but it was like 60s or 70s. And I think 70s. that one at one point in time, like around 79, that they were considering making the movie and it ended up not happening. Um, I, I, I did read that recently. Well, while we're on the subject, would you guys like to see a remake of that movie? Yes. Yeah. I mean, as much as I love the movie, I do think uh, it deserves a, uh, a second shot. Because um, like, one thing to keep in mind like this is a movie that's it, it's kind of a fantasy it kind of belongs in the fantasy genre even though they took out all the more fantastical elements of the source material um which makes sense because like this is a movie that came out before the likes of uh it came out before peter jackson did lord of the rings and before game of thrones was a hit and i think this like a movie like this today would probably there's probably more of an audience for it today than there was 20 years ago mm-hmm. um and i think you can do more today than what you could uh 20 years ago because i don't know how much visual effects are in this movie i think um they might just be like reserved to like you know the occasional green screen shot here and there but like some of these battle sequences um could be larger in scope um and the as much as I love the movie, the fire serpent sequence, like they, 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 they're supposed to mistake like this trail of 
Wendell soldiers with torches coming down the mountain and like the heavy mist. They're supposed to mistake it for a dragon. But the uh, moment you see it, it's like that's pretty obviously just a trail of people on horseback carrying torches. <laughs> so I think if you had uh, today's visual effects, you could maybe pull that off a little bit better. Well, yeah, um, but you got to consider the education level back then. So if you were that, told that, that, that there's true. dragons and if they're coming through the mist and all you're seeing is fire, well, and you had the one guy that with the eye patch that was telling them it was a fire of them, you know, and. Yeah. I absolutely like from their perspective, it makes sense. It's just for a modern audience seeing that. It's like, Oh, okay. That could have been done a little bit better to convince us a little bit better. Yeah. Right. Um, And And I love that part where he's like, Oh, I much rather prefer a dragon. (laughs) (laughs) It's all Calvary men. It's like, well, fuck, that's a lot of Calvary men. I would have rather had a dragon. (laughs) You you know, as someone who plays D and B, I get it. I think I would rather just be one dragon. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, in D&D right now, my character's name is Herger the Joyous. And he's actually, like, he's a he's a combination of both Ahmed and uh, Herger's. Because, like, in-game, um, my character's father is from the Topaz Dooms. Basically, the Topaz Dooms is what... Um, um, and the hell is Islam is basically so his father is basically Arabic and my mother is Norse so yeah it's kind of interesting I have like both cultures represented in my character and right now we're fighting goblins demons and the undead so yeah yeah it's gonna be fun <laughs> yeah mine uh my character, I, I never played D&D until uh, my son got to be 18 and uh, he wanted us to play because he played with his friends. And I was like, okay, you know, and my wife's like, yeah, that'd be fun. So he created characters for us and mine's like a half orc that's like uh, 10 feet tall and his name's uh, Bjorn Mountain Killer because nice. his backstory was he uh just was kind of over it but he was i forget something that happened but he basically just charged up the mountain just killing you know hundreds of soldiers to get to the main king just to because he just wanted to be he was done with it all you know and he just he was so fired up stuff so it's a fun little backstory with it too so okay where did the the bjorn come from because all i could think of is a baby bjorn (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like he's charging up the mountain with a baby on his chest well that was when uh vikings on history channel started and bjorn ironside ah gotcha from, okay i haven't who, seen who uh, in the movie show. is ragnar lothbrok's son but in real life they're not sure if there was even a real ragnar lothbrok or not they uh they think like some people say king harold was supposed to be Ragnar. Some say Bjorn was supposed to be Ragnar. Some of the stuff that Ragnar does in that series was actually done by in real life by Bjorn. So, but we that's that's not what we're talking about now. But <laughs> I know. Well, I was going to mention. I think I was eighteen when I got into D and D. If you're playing it in college, and I just I remember playing a half orc. His name was Bongo because that's all I could think of. Because like, well, half orcs are kind of dumb. I was like, well, Bongo then. but i remember like the very first day we played there was this guy in our group and he was playing a dwarf and his name was moltar testicles i'm like 
okay, I'm starting to get why people play this. They just kind of have fun with it. But like, what was funny was like his character comes running in, we're in the middle of a battle in a tavern. He goes to swing at somebody and misses. That person crits, and like his character gets his head cut off within like the first <laughs> first battle. <laughs> and the dm's just like i'm sorry um just change the name and be his brother so he changed it from boltar testicles to brotar testicles what is this <laughs> <laughs> two <laughs> nice <laughs> anyway um yeah i don't really have a whole lot more i mean there's a lot of trivia but a lot of it i it, we'll be here like another hour. Well, well, Kenny, you asked me if uh, uh, me and Curtis how if, if we would want to see a remake. Would you want to see a remake? You know, I I would, and kind of for the, a lot of the same reasons that you were talking about. You know, I think it could benefit from you know some added effects and some. You, they would have the budget to bring on more people in the city, so you'd actually have maybe some more town people defending the thing and you know you'd have the like you said the fireworm could actually be some sort of they could do something mystical with it make the window maybe a little more magical and you right. know and just to add a little spice to it and yeah. if they do it i i would really love to see the way that omar sharif come back to kind of play the same sort of character he played in um oh my god i just forgot the movie Hell oh, Lawrence, arabia. Arabia. Lawrence arabia thank you uh, i was on a different train of thought uh but uh the way he you know they kind of switched where he was the younger with the you know guy and he wore the black and the guy wore the white well they switched it to make antonio banderas be the one wearing black and he wore the white so bring back antonio banderas to play the character that he played and maybe bring back bovine to play the king that was in trouble you know and a a few things like that it doesn't have to be a whole lot but just enough to be like aha bring bring back the guy that plays harger to play harger (laughs) (laughs) it's like like, you know jay jonah jameson you know it's still what's his name uh jake but yeah i i I think that you know just the effects that they could add to the battle scenes and some of the if someone who loved it like how we love it got a hold of it and it wasn't just some hey you want to make yourself a few million dollars direct this turd so we can move on to the next you know actually has somebody who loves the movie and you know and some of the wrongs and some of the questions and some of the stuff they fix that, you know. I, I think it would be. I, I'm still waiting for movies, you know, in the same vein of like the movie called The Warriors. I don't know if you guys remember that, but I've seen I want, parts of it. Yeah, same thing with that, you know. It, it has some things that could be fixed, and so these kind of movies that I hold, you hold dear, you know, give those some attention. Give those a budget give them like you said it's you're in the time of game of thrones and you know vikings on history channel and different things like that are super popular with not just teenage boys or not just with young males but with you know women at the bank talk about you know these movies and you know soccer moms discuss these movies and shows and stuff so 
I, I think there would be a big audience for it. Curtis, are you walking to the bathroom? <laughs> I think he's on mute. He might not be able to answer. <laughs> no, I'm not walking. I got to do something real quick. <laughs> Drop a deuce. Gotcha. Well, anyway, <laughs> um, one thing that, that that kind of like in hindsight that kind of sticks out to me about this movie, um, and I guess the book as well, is that this is like a story um, that's from a pre 9-11 world that has an Arabic main character and they don't treat him like, you know, stereotypically he's not the villain or anything like that. They don't, yeah. they don't really make jokes at his expense. Like, you know, the, some of the Vikings kind of bust That was something I wanted to bring up. Curtis, that was something you wanted no, to bring up? I'm glad you brought that up because that was something I did want to bring up because it, it's a, it's not an awful portrayal by any means. It's very favorable. Right. It's a, it's a very um, well done and tasteful um, depiction of such a character. Um, Even if it is played by a Spaniard. Right. It's yeah. played by a Spanish man who is not Muslim, uh, as far as I know. So that is like, you know, if you did remake a movie today, that is like one thing. It's like it's a it's a very good uh, role for such an actor, but they didn't cast an actor like that in the role. As much as I loved Antonio Banderas in this movie, I don't know if uh, there were any popular actors 20 years ago that um, would have met that criteria and still been a bankable star. Um, well, even from what I understand, though, I mean, even with having him having somebody of that descent, you know, being the main character of this movie, like they still, you know, dropped a lot of the Arabic music that yeah. was originally in it they um scenes that depicted him kind of doing more of his culture and stuff like that were like dropped so i imagine it was one of those things of look we're gonna have to settle somewhere you know antonio banderas is our guy you know yes he's not muslim but and like to you to what you said how many people in that era were big enough bankable stars because you know, Antonio Banderas wasn't huge used at the time, but he had enough under his belt that he right. was a draw for people to come. So, and I don't recall, like you said, I don't recall anybody of that descent having that kind of star power. Right. I think nowadays you could do a, a adaptation of this movie and cast that part. Um, uh, not necessarily better, but like, you know, just more, appropriately appropriately yeah. that's the word um and oh i had another thought but i'm, I'm drawing a blank on it now but um, and that's kind of where you know with me saying i'd like to see antonio banderas come back and play the omar sharif part you know stuff like that where he's just in the beginning of it, it he's not the focus of like it in minutes it's just a little fan service to everybody who loves the thing and then have that you know arabic actor you know, take it over from there and just, you know, kill in it. So I, right. I, I think that would work awesome. And then between all the people they had that was in the Vikings series and some other stuff, they've got a good, you know, 
amount of actors to pull into those scenes. So right, I think I googled once because Curtis and I like a couple of years ago were talking about like who would you cast if you remade this, and I googled like uh, Nordic actors, and like it came up with like thirteen well-known Nordic actors. Like, well, fuck, there's your cast. <laughs> 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 Soft, right? But uh, it looked like you know of those thirteen guys, like it looked like you know a handful could have been from the same area. But then you've got like the guy who wore the armor and the red head and a couple of uh, other ones. Tony Coran, who's definitely Scottish. Yeah, right. And Brad, Scottish he, or Irish, one of those. There, there was an article Brad brought up. I'd read the same one where our uh, depictions of vikings and popular culture was changed because of this movie because you'll watch things like you know uh, how to train your dragon and suddenly you got like scottish looking vikings right, those vikings what? like they're all scottish actors playing them or at least a lot of them are yeah a little more celtic looking right which is interesting to think about it's like you know it wasn't a big hit but i've actually I'm surprised at the amount of people that I come in contact with that like, Oh yeah, I know that movie. I love that movie. I'm like, all right, that's cool. It's, it's got a little following, but I guess it's not cultish enough to get like a, an arrow blue Blu-ray or something, which would be interesting. Yeah. I thought uh, it was funny. Like they were talking about the real life. I'll just call him Eben and, uh, or Eben. 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 And, uh, but like he, when he, uh, first met the Vikings in real life, he couldn't get over how physically beautiful they were, you know, right. with their blonde hair and their good looks and their muscular bodies and all that. And it's like, I laugh because, you know, obviously they went in and only mated with the most beautiful women. And so they just had beautiful, if you go to Iceland, like every female there is like a goddess you know they're just gorgeous and there's a reason for that you know many many centuries of beautiful people having babies <laughs> and, and then she's like he just shows up like whoa whoa buddy go go back no 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 <laughs> yeah. well, hello <laughs> okay i remember what it was i was going to say earlier um I, the, this movie's runtime is only an hour and 43 minutes, which is kind of short compared to like modern movies. Like yeah. typically you kind of hover around the two hour mark, might even go up to like two and a half hours. If or you feel four hours especially, in some cases. If, you, if you're especially pretentious, you might go up that high, you know, three and oh, a half, four hours. Especially pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if you were to uh, readapt this story, um, I think there is plenty of material to work with um, to give it more of a modern runtime. And like you said, like a lot of the sequences that um, about Ibn's uh, character where uh, more like it showed more of his culture and stuff like that, like that you can add that stuff back in um, to where it's not just a guy who's Arabic, but like you, you really only focus on the Vikings. Um, I don't know. I think you could just do, uh, you can do that a little bit better. You certainly have room to do that better. I think do that, or even even do like a mini series. I think 
be good for like like a short miniseries, like like eight episodes or something. Well, going to you know, adding on to what you were saying there, uh, like even the actor that played Bovine had mentioned, you know, to uh, several people that wouldn't it make sense to like give some backstory to the thirteen guys, mainly because when they when the ones that died died, it was like, well, that happened next, right? You got. You get like two or three that die in the very first battle, and it's like I don't, I didn't really get to know them, so I'm not really yep. upset by it yet. And that's what he said. Right. Give them a little more time, and if you do have a longer run time, you can give a little backstory to. I mean, if you don't want to do all thirteen, do at least a good you know, portion. Yeah, at least the ones that lived. You know, if you still want to knock off, like you said, three in the beginning, and you know whatever. I mean, by the time you get to the cave scene and the one with the armor dies, you have a little more because you did get to know him a little bit. Yeah, uh, I forget the character's name, but I believe it was Clive Russell who played that one. Yeah, they they referred Russell. to him as um, the fat, like in yeah. the, in the uh, credits. Whatever his name is, and in parentheses, the fat. It's like, he's not <laughs> that fat, but okay. <laughs> I guess like for a Viking, book, maybe. So. <laughs> It was the fat in the book too. Was he? And again, goes yeah. it could go back to his whatever culture he came from. That yeah. could be their body types. You know, it's, it's not it, you can't really, in all fairness, call a Samoan fat because they can't help it. That's just you know, or an Inuit Alaskan. You know, if you get one of them, they can't help it. That's just how their people are. They're just round people. <laughs> or in fifty years' time, that's what America will be. Yeah. Or, or now but yeah it's like you've still got those health conscious people around the coast <laughs> i remember anyway. listening I remember listening somewhere i think it was one of those interviews and i think it was vladimir who said that after like one screening even though it was kind of disastrous all the people when they were asked what they did like they liked his character and they like her her character the best and the studio saw that as a detriment because it's like, well, they're not our star. Antonio Banderas is our star. And so yeah. that's why some of the, like he said, some of the scenes that they had were chopped out, even though they're still moving. The Herger still gets quite a bit to do. I guess there was a little bit more to it. So, because they wanted Antonio Banderas to be like the one everybody liked. Because, you know, he's the one that but they're they, banking on. <laughs> they cut a lot of his uh, scenes that featured him. Um, apparently okay <laughs> yeah and, and you know antonio banderas for the most part when he's in a movie he is the star he is the face that everybody likes but i mean in this one you've got you know with Herger, you know he his charisma his everything about him you're just like that's a cool dude you know, you yeah. can't, he, he can't tone that down. That's just who, and he's probably a cool dude in real life. He's, and probably the, he's like, uh, he, the re, I feel like the reason he didn't, like, I'm sure he had some stuff cut out, but like most of his interaction was with Bandera. So like, that's probably why he kind of survives this cut of the movie a little bit better than some of the other ones. Yeah. yeah. And perhaps it's because of the cutting, but uh, Vladimir Kulik's character comes off very stoic 
and maybe it's because they cut out some of the scenes of his, but uh, his, his character is kind of the epitome of stoicism in a way. Um, well, which a lot me, of people kind of aspire to. To me, though, it felt like you had different stages of, like, you know, when they, uh, in the beginning, when they set the king on fire, they're like, you won't see this you know these ways anymore they and for the period that that's supposed to be in is right that's when they kind of got away from doing that kind of stuff and then so you i look at it it was like bovine would be the next generation and so he would still have some of that like you said that stoic but he still had that i'm interested in learning and stuff like that. And then you have some of the other guys that were kind of not necessarily the next generation down, but somewhere in between. And they, you know, had the little more loosey goosey, fun, cracking jokes and, you know, stuff like that. So I think, I don't know if that was intentionally done that way, but I picked up on that as, you know, the different generations, you know, represented in there of the old ways to kind of how they were, you know, that, that's how I took it anyway. So, right. But, so is this, uh, there's, 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 one, there's, there's a, another thing. Uh, the actress again, uh, what's her name? Diane. Uh, I think it's something like Venora. I, I'd have to look it up. I remember I read somewhere, it was like an interview. Someone asked her about the 13th Warriors. Oh, that movie? Yeah, um, I was in that movie. <laughs> I mean, she's in it, but I guess she had a lot cut out. So Probably a lot of scenes with uh, Bullvi's character, because like, yeah. like we mentioned earlier, they exchanged some glances a few times, but like they, you never really see anything beyond that. And never I imagine seen, like, it probably was. What? You never see them play pocket pool or anything. <laughs> but I, I imagine there probably was more development in their relationship that got cut. Yeah. Um, that wouldn't well, surprise like me. When the king is like, fetch me my armor, and she shoots in, shoots bovine that look of, are you going to do something? Right. You know, He's or, like, I'll, I'll join you out there. And it's like, mm. if, if they were just acquaintances and she shot him a look like that, he'd be like, the fuck are you looking at? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> if he wants to fight, he'll fight. But, but because it is somebody... established that uh, this king already knew Bulvi. Like, he sent for yeah. him personally because he I was already familiar with him and wanted his help. So it makes sense that he would know um, the king's daughter. I believe she was the king's daughter, right? I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think so. But I mean, even though, I mean, even still, though, like, just the the interaction just made me feel like they had somewhere in the cutting room floor there was a love scene or there was something that didn't quite make it because it was more than just hey we know each other and i can just shoot you looks that was like someone that you've been intimate with a little bit right there was history there that didn't get delved into there was a there's actually a behind i don't know if it's behind the scenes or it's some kind of a set photo of the two of them and like they're standing next to each other and then there's another photo from the same angle and they're both kissing so obviously there was something there but we, we, yeah. we probably will never see any of that, no matter how much. When I when I rewatched it. this last night, 
if anyone's listening to this and has not seen this movie, uh, I don't know why the hell you're listening to this part, but uh, <laughs> potential spoilers here. When uh, Bullvie gets poisoned and he's back um, at the, uh, I guess, encampment, I don't know what you'd call it, um, the king's, um, I think in the book they refer to it as like his mead room or whatever. <laughs> but like he tells uh, Bullvie, like should he pass, he would be buried as a king. When I was watching that last night, I was like, wait, you mean the way they they did the king at the beginning of the movie where they put him on a boat and they sacrificed a girl and burned it. Like, are they going to do that to some random woman when Bullvi passes? And they never show that. So I'm still curious, like what happened there? Well, I, I, we know what happened and you'll just have to listen to the interview. Oh, okay. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, no, sure. one last thing. You guys interviewed um, the... Kevin Van Hook. Right, and I, I wasn't there for that, so I guess I'll find out when the, the listeners do. Yeah, but, uh, one last thing of trivia. The guy, I cannot, again, there's so many characters that played the lookout. He's one of the survivors at the end. Yeah, um, one of like the th four survivors. He apparently is not an actor. He was just a dentist. And then when the movie was done filming, he went back to being a dentist. Really? <laughs> yeah, Curtis told me that earlier today. It is like, that's great. So like John McTiernan's like, hey, I still owe you for that last visit. You want to be in a movie? <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, he did good. He was good. Well, I yeah, mean. He, he is pretty good. I mean, we do have an actor now, Kim Jong, that, you know. Was a doctor. Was a doctor, and he decided to take a chance. So maybe he, that was on his bucket list. He's like, you know, I've done a little Maybe he did a little acting, like theater or something, and something. Uh, yeah. And they obviously needed a big dude, you know, to play the part. So, right. I don't know. I'd be interested to find out a little bit more about that. <laughs> Another thing that I noticed on the rewatch yesterday is at the end of the movie, when Antonio Banderas's character is on the ship and he's heading back home, and he's shouting to um, Herger, who's on the shore. Mm -hmm. And they're saying goodbye to each other. It occurred to me that the other two survivors are on the ship as well. Uh, yeah, Herger's Tony character and the dentist, they're both on the ship as well. And it's like, well, why the fuck is Herger staying behind? I don't think we talked about that on the interview, but I do kind of know there is okay. a storyline involving the uh, son, you know, the one that who uh, the, had the, the muscle. Yeah, he the had the muscle yeah. and they, Herger kills the muscle. Apparently he comes back and he after the everything and tries to like fuck with them again and hurt somebody. I think both Herger and Eben had to kill him. Oh. And then, but uh, they were asking uh, Eben to stay and kind of help out with everything. But he, you know, he had his mission, so he couldn't. But I guess Herger is the one that ended up staying to help out. I I I I knew why Tony Coran's character went back because he mentions earlier in the movie that he has a daughter. I was like, okay, he probably wants to go back to where he came from, where his daughter was. And the other guy just want to go go back to his dentistry. Right. He <laughs> go back to, he's like, I got patience to see. It's been like a year. <laughs> see, now I took it as uh, they will send a couple people with as like escort for when they're, you know, they're escorting someone like a king or something that comes back or a squire or something like that they'll send a couple guys to make sure they get to their next destination okay 
And I took it as that. Like they were just escort, you know. But At least they don't have to go as far because I, I guess wherever he needed to go was some place that they passed initially in the novel. I don't know if it's yeah. really in the movie at all, but yeah, I don't know if they mentioned that in the movie. Yeah, I think that's about all I've got. Unless you guys have anything else, no. you need streaming. to add. You need to add the uh, low there little saying at the right with all done or something. That'd be pretty cool. Oh, add it at the end of this yeah, yeah. i think i will before we go i like we we haven't really talked about that scene and that scene is great that speech in particular yeah. is great um like that final battle i'll be honest is a little anticlimactic but the lead up into that is like very great like one of the best scenes of the movie when they're all reciting the prayer and uh bullvi comes out even though he's sick and nearly dead and he's like i'm gonna fight with you no matter what um but yeah I, I hate the shit on the movie is like the last thing we do but that that battle is kind of <laughs> anticlimactic like it's only a couple minutes long and a lot of it's in slow-mo <laughs> I, I get they wanted to be different each battle be kind of different one's in dark one's in a cave you know then this one's in slow motion in the rain <laughs> but but the the lead up into that battle is pretty fucking epic though yeah it is. All right. Well, thank you uh, both for participating in this, and thank you to the three or four people that will listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> the three or four people who saw it when it came out. <laughs> no, uh, no. Yeah. So, well, that's it. I uh, hope you guys, if you stuck around this long, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, stay tuned for the interview with Kevin Van Hook. And then um, go back and rewatch the movie again. Maybe, maybe buy it somewhere. See you guys later. All right, take it easy. Lo, there do I see my father. Lo, there do I see my mother and my sisters and my brothers. Do I see the line of my people back to the beginning? No, they do call to me. They bid me take my place among them. In the halls of Valhalla, where the grave they live. Well, we are here with Kevin Van Hook. Is that, did I say that correctly? Yeah. I, I noticed on the movie there was no K at the end of your name. Was that a... I was a question on the lips of Hollywood. Oh, was it? Kevin Van Hoo. <laughs> Kevin Van Hoo? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was just a typo on their part. My first major screen credit and they screwed it up. I was wondering, because oh, that was the only movie where it was Van Hoo. I was like, oh. Yeah. No, must have been going through a phase or I dropped a K. They got all Hollywood and we're just, you know, Van Hoo. <laughs> uh, my, uh, my, I have twin sons who are now 32, but at the time would have been like 12 years old. And uh, one of them in particular um, was, uh, he got the biggest kick out of that. But, uh, and, and I had made the joke that I was a question on the lips of Hollywood. So he went around saying that for. <laughs> Nice. Well, um, you are 
a comic book artist, a writer, you've directed, you do visual effects, you, you just kind of do a lot of things. Yeah. And um, but today we're talking about your storyboard art for the 13th Warrior. Um, this is a movie that Kenny and I both love quite a bit. Um, it, it was like there's a few like having known Kenny for like the last year there's a few things that we just both mutually like and I was really shocked I was like 13th Warrior I thought I was like the only person that liked this movie <laughs> oh no surprisingly has a really large fervent following right you know when I uh, I went on vacation in Europe in 2006 <clears throat> and um you know, it, it, it was a chartered bus tour. So I'm with a bunch of people from Australia, a few people from Canada, a couple people from America, the U.S. And, um, you know, you, nobody knows what anybody does. And it, but after three or four days, I had mentioned that I'd worked in movies and stuff and didn't really say anything specific. And then like the next day, this older guy from Australia was like, 13th Warrior, right? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Well, thanks. He said, yeah, you know, it was just one of his favorites. And that at that time, I was the vice president of a company that, called Film Roman that made The Simpsons. Or so between oh. Warrior and The Simpsons, I was in his good graces. This, this guy loved both of those things. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, is that, what's your most recognized project that you have found that people notice? I'm most known for being the guy that created Bloodshot, which is nice. the movie that came out last year. Um, it's always interesting because I don't necessarily always uh, talk about all of my careers to all the people I'm currently working with, although more and more it tends to happen because yeah. the information is out there. So if you Google me, you'll see a bunch of stuff. And so then people know. But, um, but like when I first got into film, like this era we're talking about with 13th Warrior, nobody knew I'd did, done comics or I'd written a book that sold a million copies or it, that was completely off the, the table and so it was just purely just coming to me because I could draw and I was a storyteller and and uh, I was doing effects so, but uh, I can tell you a little bit about um, how my involvement with 13th Warrior came to be if you're interested yeah how did uh, how did you get involved had you heard of it before and or I had um I had met a fellow uh, who was running a, a division of Disney called Disney Effects. And it was kind of this little offshoot, off the lot building in Burbank, like a floor of a building in Burbank. And that from the outside looks very institutional, looks like it you know, might've been a school at some point or a prison or something like that. And- um, Same thing. Yeah, <laughs> prison. And, uh, I uh, had met this guy and I told him, this is my background. This is what I'm doing now. I'm starting visual effects, but I, my background's in writing and drawing comic books. And, and uh, I've uh, been putting my first feature together and, and that's kind of where I was. And um, he hired me to create a variety of things for Disney projects. So I created the animated opening for the Mulan home video sing-along video cassette oh wow nice unusual yeah <laughs> but then because i drew they had a, a, a bunch of pilots coming through and at the time this was just kind of a i really wish this place still existed because 
Disney tends to be very stratified and, and very orderly. And they had Buena Vista visual, visual effects, which is a you know big guns division. They had something called the Secret Lab Dinosaur uh, at one point. And they outsourced to places like DreamQuest, which is another great visual effects place, and then absorbed them. And they became part of these other, other entities. But Disney VFX or DFX as it was called was this just kind of oddball little thing. And so I could get calls where they would say, are you interested in, in storyboarding the opening title for a, a pilot? And so I did, which was something called Johnny X. Um, starred Dustin Wynn. Dustin Wynn was uh, on 21 Jump Street. And he was at that, just this is right before he was on a TV series called She Spies. But so Dustin, I was two blocks away from the studio and, and so Dustin would come to my apartment and we'd sit there and he'd look over my shoulder and I'd show him stuff on the screen and this is what I'm doing. They wanted a wild, wild west kind of transitioning from live action to a drawing comic book kind of illustration. Thing. So I did that. And then I was asked if I would storyboard a pilot, another pilot. And um, got to work with, uh, with some great directors and things. And then one day I got a call saying, We've got this movie, it's called Eaters of the Dead. It's a Michael Crichton novel. And I was like, I saw a trailer for that like a year ago. And they're uh, like, yeah, they're, they're in, they want to do reshoots. Um, and are you interested in doing them? So sure. So then they put me in touch with Ned Dowd, who was a producer, and uh, Michael Crichton uh, briefly. And essentially what the deal was is McTiernan had done his cut and the studio and Crichton weren't completely pleased. They wanted, there was a lot of stuff left out. And so Crichton was going to go back and direct new scenes and put back in things from the book that he felt were pivotal. And he had a, essentially a list of bits that he wanted in there. And they came to me and they said, we need you to do as much as you can do in like five days. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. And then uh, they, uh, um, I said, can I bring on help? And said, yeah, I mean, you know, you have somebody to help. I said, yeah, I've got a buddy that draws with me and we could do more. And then he, then they came back and said, so if it's two of you, could you do it in like three and a half days? We <laughs> 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 do our best, but I was really shooting for five days. <laughs> And, um, but they gave us this list and they gave me a VHS. And sadly, I lent the VHS out 20 years ago and I don't have it. But I oh, had, wow. I had, you the, had, you had the original cut. Yes. And I kick myself on a weekly basis for it. But I, do you, do you see the person still or no? They passed away. Oh, that's uh, nice. uh, so, which is sad in its own right, but it's, he did take that. But, <laughs> Uh, no, it's a, it's all unfortunate, but it was, uh, this tape was, um, just a VHS recording just straight out of the edit bay. And it was, um, it was very different than what you've seen. Yeah. Since that a lot of the scenes that we drew that did not exist at the time were they, in the original, when the, the, uh, um, the, the, the Vendel mother, when the, you know, the, the old witch uh, hits Bullvi and poisons him. In the original version, it was just like a little, little pinprick, just kind of like that. And then he runs outside and then he gets sick. And then that was it. So oh. none of it 
stuff was going in the cave and the underwater stuff and all that. None of that was in there. And oh, wow. the whole, um, so, so one of the, the, the wonderful things about these guys was the freedom they gave us because they essentially said, because I have a feeling that they thought, okay, they're going to end up drawing like a couple of scenes and that, that's what we're going to get out of them. That's great. But we drew everything that they asked. And so there was an opening bit that didn't get used where I don't think that's where there's a, um, a, a map, a hand-drawn map and an old man looking at the map and we see the old man's hand as he's drawing it. And then we pan up to him and, and it becomes a young man. And that was Antonio Banderas wow. and telling the story. And in the movie, something else we drew, we, we, we drew the indiscretion. So the idea was that um, Ibn had had a, uh, an affair with a merchant's wife. Mm. That's what got him in trouble and why he got kicked out and ended up having to go on this journey. Right. And what you see now in the movie, I believe, is just him passing her down a hallway and she kind of looks sexily back at him and that's it's it. It's sort of like implied that there may be something and you don't yeah. really see much. Yeah, we drew a whole love scene and, and the merchant kicking down the door and him, you know, gra grabbing his clothes and running outside. And going, <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> stuff we did do that wasn't in the film um there was a whole fight when we first meet bullvine where there's there's a big meal and then you see this scene going on where essentially they're determining who's going to be king uh -huh. that wasn't in the in the original film the uh another big scene that we did that was a big deal that i'm very proud of in the original cut there's a point where ibn goes to the longhouse with the, the north men and in the film now, he goes inside and we see there are dead bodies and body pieces. And like he, he takes an, a hand that's sticking out from under a, a rag or a fur or something. And it's disembodied from the, the guy and see the bear men then attack and all that. In the original cut, he went inside and we stayed with the Northmen. They talked for a moment and then we cut back to him as he comes out and he just vomited and says they were gnawed upon. And then that was it. Oh. So we added all of that stuff um, with what he saw and what he experienced. And then that following scene that goes on inside. So I was particularly proud of that because I used it almost verbatim from what we drew. That, oh, that's, wow. a, that's a scene that I like quite a bit too in the movie. Yeah, I'm, I, it was one of those things that it's like, why wasn't this in here? And right. um, almost all of the battle at the end where they're attacked and where Bullvi eventually defeats the Vindal Mother's son and, and died, wasn't in it. It was a fight, but it was against a faceless hordes. And we had made a conscious decision ourselves. My buddy, and the fellow who drew with me, I should give his name, his name is Charles Robert Lister. Lister and so he's listed as C.R. Lister, I think, in the film. And um, Charles and I felt that we needed to have an enemy that was kind of the parallel to our king. And so we drew him being the one that has the specific fight and he has the, to the totem on his chest and it's hanging from it. None of that was in it. And we got a, a call. I got a call from Ned Dowd saying, you came up with something we didn't think about and we think it's really cool. And we want to know if you want to design the, um, the amulet or the neck pe necklace piece. And so I did that. And that's what ended up being made and, and used in the film. Oh, but wow. All that was us, and then the um, 
the funeral pyre on the boat business, um, you know, at the end. And the, and the fact that, and, the, and when I say it's us, I mean, we drew it, but uh, Crichton had, had listed, you know, I'd love to have a scene where we do this. And um, so when the dog comes running up to them at the end and you realize, okay, they, so they didn't burn his dog with him, which <laughs> that's what is implied. And that's mm -hmm. what they've done before. Um, so there's growth that we got to draw that sequence and that was much longer. That's one thing I always wondered because you know you, you see the the woman get burned at the beginning with the former king, and I was always wondering, well, they burned Volvi at the end. It's very truncated. Did they burn someone with them? Did who, what? Who else was the there? Just to show that that their their ways are changing, and right. so they no longer believe that they have to sacrifice a human or an animal. We're just sending our king to Valhalla. Right. Um, was there anything in the uh, McTiernan cut that's not in the theatrical at all that you can recall? Nothing I remember. No, I think I think they had literally used everything. Um, it was really just adding on. I mean, as I say, it was it was almost as if you could take what he had. It was like he, his film came in short, almost, mm. and and it was like okay, we're. 15 minutes short, what do we do? And then that's where this list came from. And these are key points in the script or in the book. And, uh, and we were brought in to help visualize that. And, and, and the reason I, I guess the way I talk about it the way I do is today, that wouldn't happen. What would have happened would have been, you know, they would have gone to somebody like the third floor, which is a a great house in town that does um, pre-visualization for movies and television, mostly like the big Marvel movies mm. and paid them a humongous amount of money to spend three months um, visualizing it all in 3d. And you would have had like the whole sequence in uh, CG animation as a guide. Uh, whereas, you know, this was, let's get these two guys to draw this in five days and, and, uh, and that's our guide. And that's what they went and shot. They gave us a wonderful amount of freedom to do that. We, we literally, we didn't have shot lists. We had sequence lists. Give me a sequence that does this, as opposed to, you know, shot one, wide shot, establishing shot of the, of the longhouse, shot two, medium shot. We see Ibn going inside the longhouse. We didn't have a time like that. We were just given wide parameters, and then we um, executed. Well, you're obviously an artist and everything. Is there... Uh, do you still just create for fun or is it just all business for you? I try to make a point of making my business fun because I don't tend to draw anymore just for pleasure. Um, I, I create visual effects. Most of my waking hours are, create, are spent creating visual effects for movies and television. And oddly enough, having not touched a music video in like 15 years, I'm doing two in the next month. Um, but I, um, I I've spent a lot of time this last year writing a pilot for a new TV series that I'm hoping will, will happen that, that's starting to go out and get circulated to production companies and so forth but um, I try to, to, to draw for pleasure but I just tend to find um, I think like a lot of people you get caught up in the, um, in the financial aspect of it of, of well, if I can get somebody who wants a drawing of X, 
they'll pay me for that. I'll still get to draw it and I'll enjoy that, but I'll also get to like buy dinner. So. When you were doing your storyboard and you, you said you mentioned the one that you were really proud of that made it to the thing. Was there one that you were like, man, this is surely going to make it. And it never did. Not, not specifically. I mean, I was really surprised that they chose not to show the, the love affair. Uh Um. I don't know why they chose not to. I mean, I, I mean, I, my guess is they felt let's get to him to the Northmen quicker is really the reason. Right. Um, um, I was a little surprised by that because it was a it was a nice sequence. It was fun. It was within keeping of the character and so forth. I was surprised Charles did that map I was talking about. I was surprised that didn't get utilized just because he had done this really great, very Lord of the Rings looking map design. That I thought would have been cool to have opened up the film with. Uh, do you still have any of these uh, storyboards posted anywhere, or not posted anywhere? I have scans. They're they're low res because back then, you know, this, this is pre HD, right? So, so um, that's why I had a VHS of the of the other cut. Um, <laughs> but, um, they're in an odd format, so at some point I have to convert them before it gets to a point where I can't open up that odd format anymore. Oh, right. They were in picked format, which was an old Macintosh format from 20 years ago. And um, But I have a handful of those. I, I don't know for sure I have everything, but I have most of it. Nice. Um, so your overall experience was pretty positive, oh, you'd great. say? It was sleepless, but it was great. Um, <laughs> When I say we did it in five days, it was we were kind of working around the clock and sleeping in shifts. So it was <clears throat> it was just a lot of drawing in a, in a very fast amount of time. And, um, um, you know, it was just a, a different thing. The, the, the big scene they did that was very different than what I drew was um, they came up with that whole underwater cave thing separately from even what we did so what did we, you guys do oh we did what was in the book <laughs> which, okay. was, which was um I, I believe which was a cave but it wasn't a whole thing where they had to like dive in and come up in the lake later and all that kind of stuff it was just a cave and, and um, um the uh I, I think because we were we were making what mctiernan did bigger and more detailed but it was still within that world and, and he had done pretty much closer to the book. And mm. I was, so I was surprised in the theater besides seeing my name misspelled, I was surprised to see uh, um, how big they made that moment, you know, with the, with them all swimming and skulking. Cause it, they turned it into a good 10 minute scene. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> a good scene too. That's oh, great. That's no, beautifully done. Yeah. I, I, you were talking about the love scene. You're surprised they didn't put it in. I rewatched this last night and I noticed that the minute he becomes the 13th warrior is roughly around the 13 minute mark in the movie. So that very well could have been a, a thing that they did intentionally. It's very interesting. Could very well be. Um, yeah. It's uh, you know, I, I wish I could say I had been involved in my favorite scene in the film. My favorite scene is actually where he uh, shows that he's understanding their language. Yeah. It's just such a wonderful moment. And, you know, people like to point out that he had done it before in um, October. But there's something just very special about 
uh, Antonio's performance in that moment, you know, that, that I just love. So. You pig eating son of four. <laughs> I know who my mother was. <laughs> and uh, the final product, you just pretty ecstatic about it. Yeah, I'm delighted. I, I got to see it. Um, so I had just come to LA uh, when this happened. I mean, I hadn't been here more than a month and a half, something like that, when I started doing stuff for them. So I, at the most, I did this maybe three months into it. And as um, I moved up from San Diego, so I had, uh, I was still doing comics, was writing comics in San Diego, started a studio to teach me how to make movies and do visual effects. And then we were still doing a lot of comic book work. And then we scaled down and started dedicating ourselves to figuring out visual effects and making, the, this is what we do now. And um, um, anyway, they, um, uh, so I hadn't been here very long. So I, we got to go, I took my family and we saw it at, the, at um, the Egyptian theater in Hollywood. And that was just a really great place to see something big in Hollywood. And even even with the misspelling, was was still a cool thing to see my name up there, and um, uh, definitely one of the first DVDs you know you know that I owned as soon as it hit, and all that kind of stuff. Right, it's it's hard to find on a Blu-ray or I think I don't think on, I, I think it's in Germany, yeah. like a German Blu-ray somewhere. It's just it's hard to find. Yeah, it's an odd one because again, you know, I'm always intrigued when I see people say. You know, too bad it didn't do well or it's underrated because I get all the people who tell me how much they love it, mm -hmm. you know, and um, it, it definitely um, all the all, all the comic book folks that I know, you know, that, that I would talk to about movies, they thought it's great. So it's it, so so my little bubble there was telling me that this was a really um, fairly successful film. And uh, and for years I've been contacted by a group out of France who want my scans. And at some point I, I do plan on converting them and sending them to them, but they have a website dedicated to it. Yeah, uh, I've, I've sent uh, emails to Shout Factory Arrow, just like, hey, you know, if you need uh, any suggestions, 13th Warrior is due for a Blu-ray or something, you know. They're like, oh, thank you for your suggestion. And then, you know, it's been like five years. Yeah. No, it's a shame. I, like I say, I, I and I don't think I own it on Blu-ray. I don't know if it if it ever did release in the U.S., but I, I think I just had the DVD. Yeah, that's what I've got. Do you try to get like uh, something for everything that you've worked on? Do you try to like have the DVD? You have the DVD for that, you know? Yeah, I used to be better about it, but yeah, um, I, I've ended up. I've been very fortunate to do a lot, so I'm, I don't have everything I've done, but I try to. Yeah, I saw that you have a lot of stuff, so that's why I was wondering because it's it can be hard to keep up with everything when you're trying to work and do all that. Well, and like I did a movie last year called Honest Thief. So uh, did it two years ago, a year and a half ago. It came out last fall. Uh, Liam Neeson movie uh, where he's a thief and um, he's long and he has to kind of hunt down and stop the bad guy, a crooked FBI guy. But it's. Um, I don't know if it was even released on DVD. I know it's available in streaming. Right. Um, but uh, so that's one of those things I have to, to check. I did that. I did same time I was doing Honest Thief. I did. And when I say I did, I was doing the visual effects on. I did that. And I did Aaron Eckhart's um, In the Line of Fire. Mm -hmm. 
I think is the name of it. Or line, line, it might be line of duty. Um, when we worked on it, it was called live with an exclamation mark. That's, that's the other thing that's, you know, when I did 13th Warrior, it was Eaters of the Dead still. Right. But, um, yeah, Aaron Eckhart. All right, his movie was called Line of Duty, so I misspoke. Line of Duty, yeah. Yeah, so like I don't have that on DVD. I don't have, um, I don't know if Netflix releases their stuff on hard media. So I'm, I, I'm not sure if they do. I supervised um, Project Power, uh, Jamie Foxx, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie. So I don't have that. So that's, that's several from the last two years or so that I don't have. Now, when you're doing like, uh, obviously you got to keep the storyboard art for that. Do you get to keep most of your original art or does the companies end up keeping it? No, I keep it. Um, and, and today, most stuff is, is, even if I were to draw physically, like I did then, uh, I scan it and send them to them digitally. So they okay. would even hold the physical drawings. And they might even be drawn digitally. You might draw them on a pad, tablet or something. Did you ever get to meet Crichton or McTiernan after the fact? Or? He spoke to Crichton very briefly. Spoke to Ned Dowd a number of times. Traded emails with them. Um, but McTiernan was out of the picture when I was brought on. And then not long after that, he had his difficulties and was out of the picture. No wiretapping issue. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I never, I, I want to say maybe he was working on Thunderball or something when I was doing this. Rollerball? Rollerball, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Both James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any projects that uh, you were supposed to work on that you never got to that ended up being bigger, like large movies or, I mean, all the, all the ones you've worked on are large movies. I'm not saying that, but like. Oh, I know what you mean. Uh, and I've worked on little bitty things too. Uh, they, because um, I'll do stuff for independent films or projects I just like or projects that just come through at the right time where I've got availability or whatever. Uh -huh. But now I can't think of any. I mean, I've had, I'm sure that it'll come to mind because I'm, I'm always saying, oh, yeah, I was supposed to work on that. But <laughs> um, not really. There was a brief point where we had talked about the company that I was a part of, that I was an employee. They had bought my visual effects house. They were in financial trouble. And so I was starting to make inquiries about going down and working at Weta on King Kong uh, in New Zealand. Uh -huh. But um, nothing beyond just very, very preliminary conversation with somebody that was working there. Um, and no, I can't think of anything along those lines too much. Uh, you know, a little thing, there was a point where I had been hired and my team had been hired to work on something called Ghosts of the Abyss, which was a James Cameron documentary about Titanic. And uh, they decided to do it all in-house at the last minute after we'd been officially on board for six months. And oh, wow. that was kind of a bummer. Cause I, you know, I like Cameron stuff and, and I enjoyed Titanic and it was kind of a neat project. But, uh, but no, I think for the most part, the stuff that has gone away for me uh, has either eventually come back because there's a fair amount of, especially in television, there's a fair amount of stuff where they want to go with me. I bid it. 
they decide they don't have enough money, it's too expensive, they go away, they find somebody much cheaper who screws it up, and then they come back to me and ask me to fix it. <laughs> that's a lot of my career. But, uh, um, but as far as, um, as films that have gone away and then became big things, not really. Yeah, I get that. I'm a custom painter and airbrush artist. So I've had uh, a lot of people like, oh man, I appreciate it, but it's a little too much. And then they, same thing, they take it to somebody who does it cheaper. They yeah. come back to me and now I charge them double because I'm like, I got to fix their mistakes. So. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, uh, it's always the thing about you don't have to, enough money to do it right, but you have money to do it twice. And it's like, yep. it, it makes sense. And then, right. One TV series I was on, uh, they wanted me for the first episode. It was a budgetary thing. They went away and they came back to me on the second episode and I did the next two or three seasons um, because of that. You know, they'd gone with somebody cheaper and just weren't happy. And, you know, and sometimes somebody's going to be cheaper and better. You know, they're going to be good. But, uh, but usually it turns out that they're cheaper for a reason. So. Yeah. And there's a reason why you charge what you charge because you're one of the best. So... Try, the, uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, just do the best you can. And, and I'll work with people like as a, as a effects guy, as I say, we work on little films and so forth. You know, if I think it's something that we can do and not lose money and I can help them get their project made, I'll, I'll do that as well. But, uh, but it is what we do for a living. So I try to make a decent rate. Nice. Well, um, is there anything that you you're doing currently that you'd like to promote? I think the big thing I've got, I did a lot of effects and, and helped out on a project called Beyond Paranormal that's going to be coming out in July on, on home, vid, home entertainment streaming and so forth. And um, um, that, that's been the, that was a pretty big focus. I've got another film called Ave Marie, which is a, a World War II picture, very proud of by director Jesse Johnson. Jesse's done a lot of movies with Scott Atkins, a lot of action films, like he did the Debt Collector series and the Avengement and stuff like that. Um, really great action stuff. Jesse's a stuntman as well and, and a good friend. And so that, those are the two that we're just finishing up that are going to be coming up next, coming out next. So. Do you have any of, uh, do you do social media? Do you have anything where people can check you out on any of those or? I'm, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. It's just my name. So yeah. so That's just, how I found you. Kind of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just Kevin Van Hook. And I'm on, I'm on those two. I'm on Instagram, although I rarely check it. Um, I'm, I'm a fogey. So, but, uh, <laughs> but, and Twitter, I, I, I use a little bit more for announcements. Twitter was interesting when, when the bloodshot movie was coming out, I had a lot of, uh, I gained a lot of fans because of the movie, but the vast majority of them were, middle-aged women who love Sam Hugan, one of the actors in the film. And they're just oh. really humongous fans of Outlander's TV series. And so then they, they ended up following me. And I thought it was funny because I saw Sam at the, the red carpet for the movie. And I told him, I said, you know, I just signed a bunch of stuff out, out in front on the street for these women. And I said, I have, the bulk of my Twitter followers are all your fans. And I said, I meant they're going to go away once this movie kind of dies down. And he said, no, they're yours for life. <laughs> <laughs> and so far, they seem to be very sweet people. Very, uh, and it's so funny because I was in New York at New York City Comic Con, end of 2019, and um, 
there were these ladies standing by the bloodshot display at the Valiant booth. And I'm like, that's not our normal demographic is, you know, 50 year old women standing in front of it by themselves, you know, and um, the, uh, it's not to say that we don't have any female readers. It's just, it's a testosterone violent thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I just looked over and said, Sam Hugan fans? <laughs> One of the things that got us kind of working our way into doing this was uh, on our podcast, we were, they had asked, you know, is there a movie that we could see becoming a series? And both Curtis and I were like, yes, the 13th Warrior. <laughs> What's your opinion on that? Do you think that would make a good series? I, would. I never thought about it, but it absolutely would. Um, yeah, I'm curious now. I, I assume the rights would lie with with Touchstone, which is doesn't really exist as Touchstone anymore. But that's part of Disney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The uh, I don't know. I, I I don't know how difficult it would be to acquire that. And I don't know if if there would be a if it would be an uphill battle with people who want to say, you know, why do we want to do a series about a, a movie that that you know wasn't a blockbuster hit, but. Um, you see that kind of thing all the time now so i don't know yeah yeah i mean hbo would probably be like the perfect spot for it it's like you need to fill that void with that last season of game of thrones with something else sort of medieval here's the here's the eaters of the dead 13th warrior whatever whatever they want to go with with the title if they did something like that so the problem with the eaters of the dead and i and i liked the title is that it it definitely implies zombie right even back then long before walking dead and Z Nation and things. I think that was the fear. Um, and I don't know if the 13th Warrior was, I, I like the title. I mean, it just seems natural to me. But right. I, um, if that was a positive or a negative, but I, I do think that Eaters of the Dead probably would have been a negative. And I, and I don't know how, um, I'm not as familiar. I don't know how well the novel did. I was way before my time, so I'm not sure. It was, um, I was around, but it, it was definitely not on the level of Jurassic Park or Andromeda Strain or right. as far as his other stuff. If they ever decided to do a series or a comic or something and they're like, hey, would you be interested in it? And you had the time, would you? Would that be something that you'd probably get into? Or? I mean, I, mean it, I would, uh, I'd love to be involved in some fashion. I mean, it's the kind of thing I'd love to write or direct. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's it's just always one of those things that that um, unfortunately the way the industry work it works isn't really like that. It tends to be more about the uh, production companies are going to do it. They've got a group of directors that that were successful on shows like Game of Thrones or Black Sails or Viking, yeah. and they're going to go to them and they're going to go to those writers and and because of uh, diversification and trying to to bring diversity to it. They're going to try to bring, um, you know, other people of color and, and different genders and all that kind of stuff to it as well. And so it's, it's the odds are kind of heavily stacked against them coming to me on something like that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I would definitely end up, I would love to work on something like that. Sure. As I say, right now, I'm, I'm trying to focus more on writing the TV stuff and get that going, but I'm, uh, I'm still doing visual effects. And I, today I ended up having, three calls about three different projects. So it's just one of those things. It's, it can be feast or famine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, it'd probably be a little better for you now that people are getting the shots and their things are working their way to being a little more normal. I'm sure you're going to be plenty busy. Yeah, I think it, it definitely feels like that. I mean, it's, uh, I was very fortunate through the pandemic that I was able to continue working because I work at home anyway. And the, uh, the kind of stuff that came to me were films that were already shot before the pandemic started. So mm-hmm. they were in post and needed work. And then uh, a World War II film was actually shot during the pandemic, but that was a, a friend. So it was some, something where um, it was somebody that I, I'd already done effects for one of his other films. So it was just kind of a natural thing. But just recently I'm starting to get that feeling of new stuff being shot. These, these music videos are being shot in mid April. And so people are feeling more comfortable doing things. I'd, I'd been approached about going to New York and, and working on, a, and I have no idea what it would have been, but a, a big studio film. And, uh, and it's people that are already doing like the Marvel movies and stuff like that. And it may very well have been reshoots for Zack Snyder's Justice League. But um, at the time, I was just like, yeah, I don't feel comfortable doing this. So uh, I appreciate the offer. And I hope you don't forget me when the pandemic's over. But (laughs) I don't want to be, you know, with 130 other people right now. Yeah. Yeah. Don't blame you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at least you got all those new fans to look forward to when COVID hopefully maybe goes away. So. Forward to conventions again. I had plans with you know, the, the basically the industry shut down the weekend Bloodshot came out, mm-hmm. so yeah, the industry, but the world. <laughs> so it was, um, I was supposed to be at Emerald, <clears throat> excuse me, at Emerald City Comic Con that weekend, and uh, we had a screening that was going to be up in Seattle, and, and then I was going to be at a convention in Vegas like the next weekend. So I was, I was booked across the summer doing appearances and stuff and all that went away. So it'd be nice to, nice to try to, you know, get the chance to meet a lot of those people that were looking forward to meeting me and doing sketches and signing and all that kind of stuff. So it'd be, and, and just being around other people again, will be nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, very I nice. think that's, I think that's all we got. So Kevin, thank you very much for this interview. Welcome. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. Have a good week. Take care.